Never gets old that intro coming in. Um, that never gets old that intro coming in. I'm I, I'm good. I'm good. Today's October 14th. We're back with Push Talk, and we have a very special guest with us today, James. We have. Um, I, I'm I'm gonna throw it on there, and I usually give this title to judges, but the honorable um, Eric <laughs> Allen, because I see him like everywhere. Every email I get about Cobb County and Marietta, like your name is there. How are you doing this morning, man? Doing good. Doing good. Thank you for having me. So a lot of people, I mean, I know, but I mean, introduce yourself. You are getting ready to run, or you're actually in the process of running for a lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia. Yeah, so right now I represent uh, District 40 um, in the state house, which is primarily in Cobb County, all of Vinings, a little bit of Smyrna, the Cumberland area, um, and also a little bit of North Buckhead in Fulton County. And uh, back at the end of uh, last session, around March, launched campaign for, uh, for lieutenant governor. So I'll be on the ballot 2022 for, uh, for lieutenant governor. So why, I mean, you're already in the House. Why would you decide to leave the House and go ahead and run for lieutenant governor? Like, what is it that you feel like you could bring to the, to the governorship or the lieutenant governorship that you probably can't bring in the House right now? You know, when, when you're in the House, you are, are one of 180. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, in the minority. And it's very little you can do to kind of, you know, push your core values and your, your beliefs forward. You can, you can rail about them. You can, you know, talk about them. You can give a lot of speeches. Uh, but I really want to be in a position to have more impact right um, and I think with the the uniqueness of my my positioning my experiences both you know inside and outside of politics and inside and outside of state government uniquely positions me to be successful pushing democratic values in the agenda uh, as lieutenant governor so I was looking at your platform again this morning because I know it's always constantly changing I know as you guys go out and talk to people sometimes you get motivated to do other things Two of the big things that I was really, really interested in is healthcare. Um, so a little bit of my story, like I've, in the last three years, I've had eight surgeries. Um, a lot of them I had to, I mean, literally, I was blessed enough to one time, I, one doctor in particular I needed to see, um, he didn't take the insurance I had, and he literally received me for free, and, but you don't find it very often. Um, and even to the day, he still kind of sees me for free. Um, but I understand, like, the importance of what your life is like when you have not had health insurance. And I know Georgia has not accepted the Medicaid extension that, that, was, that was passed in the ACA. Um, why is health care so important to you? And what are some of the changes you want to see for the state of Georgia with health care? So, so real quick, why, why it's so important to me is it's really the reason why I ran for office. Uh, I owned a consulting practice for about seven years. And in 2011, um, I got sick and had five surgeries in six months. Mm. If you think about what was going on in 2011, it was when the Affordable Care Act was passed but hadn't yet been implemented. Right. So once insurance adjusted at the end of the year, it, it priced me out, I was not coverable. So I literally had to close my business and go and take a job. And I, I would hear people talk about the Affordable Care Act and how it killed jobs. And I literally ran on the premise of, if you think the Affordable Care Act is the one that's killing jobs, I and the people that I had to let go can tell you that the lack of affordable health care and insurance for everybody, even with preconditions, can kill jobs too. And so when you think about the Affordable Care Act, you think about what it does, it, it allows anybody that's an innovator, that wants to be an entrepreneur, that wants to take that chance, not to be beholden to a company to get insurance, but to go out and realize what they're doing. And I, I think that's a narrative we don't talk enough about, about the potential for those who want to go out and create jobs and, and create wealth for themselves and start their own business. The Affordable Care Act is probably one of the, the, the most important piece of legislation that passed to do that.
Right. Um, and you know, I tell people, you think about the three things that companies have to hold an employee. They have you know your time off, your pension, and your health care. Well, with, with your 401k now being something that's portable, they don't have that. You know, time off is now about a quality of life. And healthcare was the last fight. So when you look at corporations that were fighting the Affordable Care Act, what they were basically fighting was holding on to the last mechanism they had to hold you beholden to them in their, their organization. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a broad conversation. Uh, I think there's a lot of work left to be done uh, in Georgia on it. I'm actually leaving here and going to a uh, conference with the Georgia Alliance, uh, Alliance of Community Hospitals uh, to speak on a panel with them because healthcare is an extremely important issue. Yeah, and I, one of the things I would have to say, too, is that even from a healthcare perspective, a lot of times people don't understand, like, if it was not for the Affordable Care Act, most employees that are now covering you, like, for example, I work for a company called Subway, and the Subway I work for, they had over uh, 140 employees. But if it wasn't for that mandate saying that they had to carry the insurance, it wouldn't have been something offered. Yeah. Um, and, and at the end of the day, like, I'm a numbers, and, I'm a numbers guy, right? So when you looked at, looked at the numbers, I mean, healthy employees make half the happier employees. And at the end of the day, um, most of them, and, and the crazy part is most of the employees can't even afford the insurance to begin with. I yeah. think there was probably three of us on the insurance. Um, and, and you're right. A lot of employees do try to use these resources as ways to hold people over. So one of the things that I, is very interesting to me is when we talk about health insurance, I don't think there's a real way to talk about health insurance and not talk about um, not only pre-existing conditions, because we know that most people agree that pre-existing conditions needs to stay in place, right? Um, and I know Governor Kemp recently, like two years ago, or maybe last year, I think last year or the year before, um, created like his own little yeah. state-ran. He was going for a waiver program. To waiver program. Uh, what are some of the problems with that? You know, I, I honestly believe that um, the majority in Georgia right now, the Republican Party, has kind of gotten themselves into a box where they've talked about the Affordable Care Act and expansion of Medicaid in such a negative way. They're trying to find ways to embrace the Affordable Care Act and expand Medicaid right. without actually just doing it. Um, and, and I think that's what the governor was, was trying to get at. But as you know, um, you know that's now been revoked by uh, the, the Biden administration as you know, not letting them, the state move forward with that. So I, I fully expect that at some point in the, you know, at least if not this year, next year, the state of Georgia is going to have to have a conversation to expand Medicaid. It just it, it needs to happen. You know, not only is it embarrassing to be one of only 11 or 13 states that haven't done it, um, but to do it knowing we have so many people, especially in rural areas, that could could benefit from having it, and it would also provide some level of reimbursement to our hospital network, where right now they're you know having to do more indigent care and basically uncompensated care. You talked about your doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, they're doing a lot of those uncompensated care cases um, because we haven't expanded Medicaid. And so it, it, it's going to at some point become an economic issue just as much as a health issue. So explain to us, too, and a lot of times people don't understand this, the role of the lieutenant governor, right? What is the role of the lieutenant governor in, in Georgia? Because every yeah, state varies, too. It's a little too. bit different. Yeah, some are not elected, some mm -hmm. are, you know, appointed. Ride the ticket with the other yeah, person. Like Florida, they ride ticket. the ticket. Yeah, it's a joint ticket. So the, the primary responsibility of lieutenant governor in Georgia is to preside over the Senate. Um, you know, one of the, when I talked about experience earlier, you know, when I closed my, my practice, one of my largest clients was the state of Georgia. So I went and worked for three years as an employee, as an executive, with the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health Development Disabilities. Mm -hmm. When you look at the role of lieutenant governor, it's got you know one area of focus in the legislative 
branch and one in the executive. And what I want to do with the role of lieutenant governor is really expand what people are used to seeing and not just focus on the 40 days of the legislative session, but also focus on how do we unlock the services of Georgia for all Georgians. You know, being in that bureaucracy and working in it, how do we go out and make sure that whether it is respite care for a, a mother who has a, a child with a developmental disability, or if it's, um, you know, someone wanting to get their unemployment check, which has been an issue right now, or, you know, accessing uh, some of our other services within the state, there, there needs to be a concentrated focus on that. And the, the Constitution of, of Georgia is very clear on what the lieutenant governor can do, but it doesn't say what you can't do. Mm. And I want to stretch the bounds of that and really provide leadership across the whole swath of government so that we can unlock it. As I said, I, I use that word intentionally, but really unlock all of these services for every single Georgian. And right now, I don't feel like that's what's being done. You know, it's funny. We've been working with um, a lady by the name of Sandra Williams at the Atlanta North Georgia Labor Council. Um, and we have been adamantly pushing back against um, the whole, I mean, even though it's over, the program is hypothetically over now, but there was no reason for the governor to get rid of $300 a week. Um, because one of the stats that you look at, the purpose was that if we get rid of $300 a week, that it would drive everybody <laughs> out back out to work. In fact, our numbers are lower. People have not gone back out to work. Um, and people, once again, are nervous um, to where even I, I have friends who um, who are nurses. And as much as they're paying nurses in Georgia right now, won't cross Georgia because Georgia, they don't feel like Georgia's taking COVID seriously. What is it that, as lieutenant governor, we can do to make sure that people who are, are on unemployment are getting a fair share, right? I mean, 275 a week is really nothing. Let's be honest. It's not like we're throwing them. I mean, that's probably not even enough to pay somebody's card note. Um, and then we have so many other issues in unemployment. And even now, they want people to go back to work, but unemployment offices are not open. <laughs> yeah, it, it, to, to that point first, I mean, it's, it's funny. The governor has talked about how Georgia has remained open mm -hmm. since the pandemic started. But the one office in the state that has not remained open or even been open is the Department of Labor. Um, and not only have they not been open, if you read what went on you know, last week with that audit where they were you know, spending insane amounts of money, um, on on food and other things mm -hmm. for the employees that were there, but still not unlocking the doors to, to the people of Georgia. Once again, we got to unlock that. We got to we got to work on that. We have an opportunity to elect a new commissioner. I, I hope you guys are inviting those candidates onto we to have, the show. Yeah, um, there's opportunities to fix that. But you know, with as far as taking away the the benefit, um, that didn't that didn't work. Uh, not only did it not work, I find it extremely. Um, not condescending, but almost disrespectful to say that we have to force, we're going we're gonna to make Georgians so desperate that they have to go back to a job they're not comfortable in right. as the way to fix unemployment, I mean, the employment problems. That, that to me is a flawed premise to say that I want, my, I want the citizens of Georgia, this is the governor basically saying, I want people to hurt so bad that they're forced to put themselves in a situation that they may find dangerous or, or not in their family's best interest. Um, that, that's one thing we can change, right. is to have leaders, and I think we have had a lack of compassion and leadership in Georgia for a long time. Uh, even with the expansion of Medicaid, that, that's a compassion issue. Um, with the um, removal of the, the $300, that's a compassion issue. With making hope almost unattainable as a scholarship for, on a needs basis, 
that, that's not a compassion move. So that, there's a lot of things that we can fix by putting people in office that will think of everyday Georgians before they focus so much on the number one place to do business. But they also think that we can be the number one place to raise a family. I'd like to shift gears if possible. Um, I was curious, once in office, what, how difficult do you think your transition will be? You know, everybody's had a, for a, new, a new job in that first day. You, you don't really know what to expect. Um, but what I can say is I, I have built up not only the respect and trust of members, but also um, a lot of the advocacy groups that are in the halls. Um, and as I said, I, I believe having the experience and understanding how government works will make the transition extremely, well, not extremely easy, but less, less complex. Um, now, like I said, it's a new job, it's the first day on a job, so I'm not naive. Uh, there'll be things to learn, but I do believe it's, uh, it, it will be easier transition than if I didn't have those other experiences. And it do pushback mm -hmm. and crossing party lines uh, to get things done. Uh, I know there's going to be some uh, at some point, mm -hmm. but um, do you ex how much do you expect? I mean, as far as like depending on uh, the topic at hand, there'll be a lot. There'll be a lot. I I I, I hope that we are in the posture of not only having a Democratic lieutenant governor, but also a Democratic governor. Uh, but I'm also realistic enough to know that we are more than assured to have a Republican legislature, mm -hmm. House and Senate. Um, that's where, you know, I, we will be, be put in a position to govern with a little bit more conversation. I, I'll put it right now. There's not a lot of conversation that happens between parties, um, you know, in the legislature. Uh, the, the current construct of the, the Republican Party in Georgia feels like they can do whatever they want to do without even talking across party lines. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, they're right. They own every lever, level of, lever of government across the state. If that were to shift, I think you would see a lot more moderation coming out of the House. And the, the, the goal, and, you know, I... I one, when I first ran for office in 2014, um, I remember you know talking with with some of the legislators, and one of the things I was most impressed with was, was their understanding that it's not about the legislation you stop all the time; it's also working to make bad legislation better. And I think we'll be in a stronger position to take some of the bite out of the non-compassion legislation that we see. But um, really, so I have to jump in here, right? I find it. You have a lot more hope than I do, right? I think that we could. I think that the the Georgia could switch Democrats in the governor's mansion, could switch governors in the lieutenant governor's office, um, and still there be silence. And the reason why I replicate that is I think that the political climate is so different than it was even four years ago. Um, we look at now the president of the United States, right? Um, we have the House. He has the House. He has the Senate, and he has the Right House, but at the same time, Republicans are saying like, "Hey, listen, we helped you on this last um, debt limit increase, but don't expect our help anymore." Mm -hmm. And they have really bonded together around different issues. Even as far as saying that the, the attack on January sixth was just normal, just a normal day, right? Um, 
do you think really that the climate has changed that much? That oh no no I don't I don't think the climate has changed. Yeah, I think it make I think it'll make the other side tougher. Well, so we have to separate the 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 rhetoric and the the emotion and the, the, that tension from actually legislation getting passed. Right. You know, th there's a difference between being aggressive and being upset and wanting to push your agenda through. But if there's no Republican governor on the other side of that desk to sign it into law, you can make all the noise you want. I get it. Yeah, it, so, is a, so, it would be a little so, different. Right. So there's a, there's a difference. Now, I think the rhetoric will definitely heat up. Right. Now, that, that's not going to change. But I think when you look at the policy that would come out, you know, it's, it's almost the, the but for principle. You know, you know, I get if, it. If we had a Democratic governor right now, we would have passed HB 481 to ban abortions, but it never would have been signed into law. We would have passed SB 202 to, to strip voting rights away from Georgians, but it would never have been signed into law. So I think there's, you know, the hope is, like I said, in the things you can stop. We're not going to avoid those confrontations, but having the right people in place to stop them. And I think that's one of the things we didn't focus on um, in the election of 2018 enough. Right. Was people, you know, Republicans laser focused on one issue to get Donald Trump elected. That was the courts. In 2018, if we would have laser focused on reapportionment, and then said we will we will be draw these these congressional and and state house and state senate maps in 2021 will will draw democrats deeper into a hole of ever having any power in the state house or senate if we would have focused on that a little bit more to understand that a governor abrams would have been able to veto those maps and force them to go back to the drawing board to make them more equitable it would have been different so i, I think there's the legislation and the, the action and then there's the rhetoric and the tension. Right. One can be impacted, the other is gonna get more intense. So another thing we mentioned earlier today, we talked about healthcare, but we also talked about a big beast in the room um, that people don't like talking about a lot, social injustice or social justice reform, yep. or criminal justice reform. And so there was a video that came out, and you probably seen it in Dayton, Ohio, of a paralegic, well, how do you say the word? Paraplegic. Paraplegic man. <laughs> who was literally sitting in his car and saying, like, I can't get out of the car, I can't do this. And we actually did a podcast on it. it was, yesterday was really my first time seeing the complete video. And as a person who works in this field, I was just stunned because our organization does a lot of work to try to make sure that we're not being judgmental on one side or the other, right? We're being, we take the facts and that's what we roll with. And to be able to stand up and say to a community, like, hey, we have to have a better relationship with our police, and police, we have to have a better relationship with our community. But to have that kind of video out there, right? Um, and I, this falls, I guess this falls in line with criminal justice reform, because you can't talk about criminal justice reform without understanding that we have to reform the power we've invested in our police, our police the institution of police, right? Mm -hmm. um, that they can just search your car without there really being, I mean, they can, I've heard of cases, we've had cases where people, police would go and say, oh, I think I smell marijuana in the car mm -hmm. and bring out dogs and that gives them the right to search the car and they find absolutely nothing. There's no sign of marijuana. The person probably is like the biggest anti-marijuana person in the world, but it's just because of the fact that they needed a reason to search your car. Mm -hmm. When it comes to criminal justice reform, how do you see that? I think the first conversation is how do we redefine policing? Mm -hmm. um, and I know this is something that's probably not as popular, but I think we, in my opinion, we need to reduce the interactions people have with police, just in general. Um, if, if a police car can drive through a parking lot and take a, a photo of license plates to see if it's stolen or anything else, if, if you're speeding 
and you, you need to be given a ticket. What, what is the rationale for speeding that a police officer needs to interact with you in your car? They can scan that, that from there. They, they know who's there. You, there's technology, other ways we can have those interactions. Right. Um, I think we need to limit the interactions with police in things that are, that are what have become routine, unfortunately, like domestic violence disputes or, or interactions. If, if there is a, a dispute, is there something else that can be done? Is there a social worker? Is there you know, a crisis stabilization unit or something? In Georgia, we have mobile crisis, crisis stabilization units. Um, they run out of the Department of Behavioral Health. I know they're there because I, I work there. Um, why are they not dispatched just as much where police are more as the secondary or tertiary respondent instead of the primary? So I, I think when you look at those reforms, there's, there's the culture of policing, and there's also how do we limit the interactions with police that can, that can just go wrong. I mean, if you think about those instances where a police officer has overreacted right. in an interaction that probably should not have even happened or could have been handled a different way. And I was thinking about the other day, I know DPHED has a program now that they're doing with Cobb County, and I think it's a test pilot program where they have one mental health professional assigned to a police officer, and they've been going, sending them out like in a pair. So there's a case where a person saying, hey, my child is, um, has a mental issue and right now they're acting crazy. Can you come out? They send that pair out there. And the first interaction they have is not with the police officer. Right, that's what the police it's officer the mental health. Yeah, yeah, the mental health officer, specialist goes in. You think about the young man that was killed by the cab officer in mental health crisis. Right. They had on no clothes. It was obviously was in crisis. Why was the police officer the first one to have that interaction? Of course that's going to escalate. And the police officer has an unfair advantage against not only an unarmed man, but an unclothed man. Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, so it, it, there are ways that, like I said, I, I think the conversations need to be had on programs like that, or how do we still have the the comfort, because it really is a, a comfort of policing, and that our communities can be safe, but also understanding what interactions need, you know, what level of attention. And and I think too, from a criminal justice reform aspect of it too, we can't talk about it without actually talking about like how we jail people. Um, the fact of the matter is that most jails are the largest mental health facility we have in our country. They are. Um, privatizing prisons. I, I think that's, you know, there's some counties in Florida, like in Panama, or I think it's Panama, Pensacola, where their jail is not mandated or not ran by the sheriff's department. It's actually ran by a private company. Um, and, and we know that a lot of these private companies are investing a lot of money into bills that don't want to do criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that you feel like as far as the state of Georgia, we can do to be a leader in that area? First of all, start, you know, de decriminalizing a lot of these nonviolent um, actions. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time putting people in, you know, behind the wall um, for things that they should not be. And I, I don't think our prisons right now as they're constituted or even if, if they were to be reformed are going to return people into society better than when they went in. Right. Um, so we need to be mindful of how we use use our prisons. Um, and, and, you know, last year in the budget, uh, I think we increased the private prisons by about $2 million. Uh, where could that money have been spent better? I can think of a whole lot of places we could have spent $2 million in the state of Georgia than on, on prisons. Right. And private prisons at that. Um, that just tells you, when you start having to build capacity, I would rather build capacity in the community than build capacity in prisons. 
And that once again, that's a mind shift, a mind shift of compassion, of, of spending. I mean, it's real easy to write a two, $2 million dollar check and give it to Correction Corporation of America. You know, but what about going to the local Boys and Girls Club or, you know, investing in, in pre-K because we know that puts people on a better path, you know, to success. There, there are ways, like I said, the, the, the budget is a reflection of your priorities. Right. When, you, when your priorities are to overfund and continue to dump money and more and more money, even in a year where you're cutting. Last year wasn't a year like this year where we had all this excess. Last year the budget was significantly cut by, I believe it was 11% but still increased the, revenue, the the money allotted to private prisons by two million. I don't think that's where our priorities want to be. So all, all of that needs to come together as part of this, this conversation around you know, justice reform. And one of the things too, I was talking to, uh, you probably know her, a lady by the name of Carol Massey, the other day she, um, she's with you know, Delta. Um, but they, we, we, they actually did a report, um, and we're gonna jump over to education, but they did a report about education, they did a report on African-Americans and being suspended and being um, expelled from school. And I was surprised, and they focused in on Georgia. I mean, I'll use Gwinnett County as one. I mean, Gwinnett County, I think it's the largest school district in the state of Georgia. Um, they African-Americans make up 28% of their registration, but 48% of their actual suspension suspensions or expulsions, right? Mm -hmm. And it made me think about, even from the Criminal Justice Reform Act, like we know that African-Americans are over-sentenced two to three times more than our white counterparts or anybody else in the system. But not only are we um, sentenced harder and from the criminal justice aspect of it, they're raising the babies up to be Even sentenced harder in schools. And, and, and Cobb County as well. Uh, mm -hmm. As chair of the Cobb delegation, I sent a letter to uh, Cobb County two years ago, three years ago, because of the numbers of expansions, suspensions and expulsions in Cobb. I actually sat and met with, met with the, uh, the leadership of the school. Uh, and they've improved. Yeah. They, they have improved. Um, but we still have a long, long, long way to go. Uh, I, I just anecdotally, I, I had a, a conversation uh, with a, a, a parent and a teacher. And this is what got me involved in, in the issue. And, you know, culturally, a lot of teachers just don't understand what's going on. So a teacher being bullied, being, you know, having a bad day in class, and a young African-American student walks up to her and says, hey, I got you. She wants him expelled. What she wasn't understanding was, I got you wasn't in a violent way of, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do something to you, is I'm gonna protect you, I, I got you. But the rush to, oh my God, he's the threat. All of a sudden, that was the threat. Not the other kids in the class, but the one that's, you know, so the bias training we talked about, you know, uh, a little bit earlier, some of these other things. There's, once again, none of these issues are going to be addressed by just yelling into a void. Mm. They are complex. They need complex conversation and dialogue. And we, we first have to have honesty. Right. You know, and, and I like what you said earlier about, you know, not picking a side, not just stick to the facts. I, I find in the legislature so many times we can't have a conversation just about the facts. You, you, you already have to have your opinion one way or the other. But if we all just stick to the data, then eventually the stuff that needs to come out is going to come out. You can't argue with the fact that black kids in, in schools are suspended and expelled at a higher rate. Let's dig into why it is. I don't want to blame you for that. You know, let's let's save that for later. Right now, let's just look at that data and say what what is fundamentally going on when the minority is the majority of suspensions and expulsions. When you look at our prisons, why is the minority the majority in our prison system? And you know, I was actually Carol brought this up to my attention 
that the could the Constitution ban slavery except for one except place, for what, except for incarceration, place. except for incarceration, except for incarceration. And I was I was flown Most back by that, that. And the system. It, it's a it's a big slavery train. It really is. I mean, and, and in fact, I mean, and I think that people try to you know suffice and say, oh well, at least they're making an hourly pay. But who? First off, who can live off fourteen cents an hour? First off, and even in there, who can live off fourteen cents an hour? And secondly, like even now, I was talking to um, a, a football player yesterday, Jason Allen, and we were talking about the minimum wage in Georgia. And he was like, "Oh yeah, you know, that's it's, what is it, seven twenty-five? It's like, no, let's be honest and say the Georgia's real minimum wage is five what five twenty-five an hour. Um, and but federal supersede state, right? And we were talking about how Florida, even in Florida. Florida was able to raise their minimum wage, but how did they raise their minimum wage is that Florida has in their constitution that if me as a private citizen, if I can get 100,000 votes, I can bring something to the ballot. So hence, minimum wage is brought to the ballot by a person. Um, being able to allow people the right to vote once they've served their time was brought to the ballot by an by organization. In Georgia, that's unconstitutional. Right. What can we do to change that? We, the, the Josh McLaurin, Representative Josh McLaurin introduced some legislation last year on um, the, the disenfranchisement of, of voting right. for, for incarcerated people, returning citizens. So that that is, uh, I think it's HB 101. It's still on the books. We can pass it this year. If, if the speaker and the governor and the lieutenant governor want it done, it can be done. Oh, um, the governor doesn't want it done? I know. I'm I don't so think, surprised. I, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so on the voting, you know, that that's one thing. On the, um, the, the labor component and the wage component, you know, I it's unfortunate, but in, the way they get away with that, um, in Georgia, they, they really dehumanize incarcerated people. Right. And if, if, if you can build the public sentiment to believe that the people who have been incarcerated are less than, you'll tolerate them being treated less than. Um, and th there are, you know, I, a lot of incarcerated people are in there because they are being judged on the, the worst possible day. Mm -hmm. They could have had, you know, I, there are a lot of people, you know, but for being caught on something, the, the amount of people who are driving right now to work that probably should have been arrested on a DUI over the last year is phenomenal. But, but for, they did not, you know, they, they did not get away, you know, get, get caught on, on that day. And I'm not saying that driving you know, DUI is acceptable, but, but what I'm saying is that, you know, there are a lot of people that we have incarcerated that probably should be in some type of alternative program. And I, 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 Cobb County has done great with its accountability courts, whether it's the veteran courts, the drug courts, you know, DUI court. I mean, they're doing good with that. We, we, we need more of those things and less incarceration. Uh, to me, the prison system should be held for the most egregious crimes, uh, the most violent crimes, those that are truly... Um, a danger or threat to themselves or others or society, not for someone who had, you know, less than an ounce of marijuana. Right. You know, it's it's there are things that we need to do to make sure that we're we're treating our we're, we're using our our prison system for what it's intended for, not for a way to put people away. And the crazy thing is, America spends I think I read an article almost ten times more than the rest of the world on the Absolutely. prison system. Um, and and again, we lock people up for the for the craziest things. I think that. the system as a whole needs to be reformed. I think that 
Um, one of the things that we really have to work on is educating children on why it's so important to vote for people, not because they're black, not because they're white, not because they're Democrat or Republican, because they stand for your issues. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why I'm super excited that you came on. And we could probably go on and on all day uh, about some of these things because there's so much going on. Um, but I appreciate you coming on today. And for everybody who wants to know, learn more about Mr. Allen, you can go to his website right here, allenforgeorgia.com, um, where he's running for a lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia. And if we have problems, if you're in Cobb County, call him. I'm telling you, he will be on, he will be on it. <laughs> thank you for coming today, Mr. Yeah, Allen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, man. Mm -hmm.